America. Your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. From the fabulous Forum in Inglewood, California, this is the season premiere of the Major Indoor Soccer League. And tonight on the USA Network, the four-time MISL champion New York Arrows take on the expansion Los Angeles Lasers. Tonight's game is brought to you by Budweiser. For all you do, this Bud's for you. By Mobile One, the oil that saves you gas and more. By Toyota, who reminds you that it's a good feeling to buckle up for safety. And by Levi's jeans, cords, and shirts for quality and style you can count on. It is a beautiful evening in Southern California, and tonight we're live in Inglewood, California, at the Forum as the MISL has made its move to Hollywood. And this is center stage for our game tonight. With a spanking new artificial turf, certainly the lasers will be sky high to stop the champions. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the MISL once again on USA. We have moved our coverage this year to Wednesday and Sunday nights in hopes of bringing you the best matchups that the MISL has to offer. Al Troutwig once again teamed up with the smiling face of Kyle Rowe Jr. And Kyle, in the months that we've left the MISL, there have been some major changes. Oh, my goodness, Al, an awful lot has happened. I guess the, the two bywords, one would be expansion, the other would be consolidation. Consolidation in that the only indoor soccer that's going to be played this season in North America will be in the major indoor soccer league as the three indoor indoor teams from the North American Soccer League, Chicago, San Diego, and the San Francisco Bay Area have all joined the major indoor soccer league. It's also expansion that we have the new LA Lasers owned by Jerry Buss, who also owns the LA Lakers in the league, and that, that adds a lot. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, everybody, let's buckle up for safety, shall we? My name is Tim Hanlon, indeed, and this is, of course, Good Seats Still Available. Welcome to the proceedings. It's our little journey that we uh, like to do each and every week, uh, despite all the obstacles against it. Uh, it's our excursion into what used to be in professional sports, and uh, we are back into the world of major indoor soccer league action. Uh, there was a nice little uh, hefty clip from the, uh, I think, second full season uh, on the USA cable network. There was the uh, the dulcet tones of uh, of Al Troutwig and his uh, trusty sidekick, Kyle Rowe Jr., uh, former guest, by the way, on this show. You got to search up that episode. That was a wonderful conversation we had a couple of years back uh, with Kyle. Uh, but that was from, uh, what was that from? November 10th, 1982, the second ever game, also the second ever home game, for the, uh, the topic at hand today, the Los Angeles Lasers. No, 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 not the Lakers, also owned by the Jerry Buss family. No, no, this is the Los Angeles Lasers, the MISL franchise. In Los Angeles, the team that uh, joined and expanded, as you heard there, a little, uh, little updated history lesson of 1982, uh, and was there for about seven seasons until the end of the 1988-1989 uh, season. 
And uh, what a uh, an interesting and 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 curvy and and uh, indirect and uh, uh, convoluted story. This is and will be with our guest this week. One of the uh, the the main uh, movers and shakers behind this franchise, Ronnie Weinstein, uh, is our guest this week, and he was, for all intents and purposes, the almost like the chief uh, operating officer for this team, a, a general manager, a vice president of this, vice president of that, but part of the uh, Jerry Bus uh, sports empire in the late seventies, early nineteen eighties, really uh, getting underway with uh, uh, the Lakers, of course, who uh, just started to. Uh, exert themselves, I guess, sort of as the uh, the Showtime era, uh, Magic Johnson et al., uh, the Los Angeles Kings, which are certainly part of the enterprise, and by the late 80s were uh, poised to uh, take that next level step with uh, the addition of a one, a great one, uh, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, yours truly, by the way, at that first ever game at the Forum, but I digress. But uh, this other tenant, this curious little tenant uh, of the fabulous Forum, uh, which is uh, also something that the Bus family was uh, uh, newly owned or newly owning, uh, and uh, and wanted to fill with dates uh, and uh, various properties. And the Los Angeles Lasers and the dynamic at the time Major Indoor Soccer League seemed to fit the bill. Uh, but we'll get into uh, not all that glitters is gold uh, kinds of dynamics to this story, uh, as uh, most of you soccer aficionados out there may uh, remember. Uh, you know, not all the, the franchises in the MISL were the strongest and and the Lasers in particular had their challenges. As a matter of fact, they were arguably poised to, to take advantage of being in the uh, the sexy market of L.A. and the entertainment capital of the of the of the planet. Uh, but, uh, you know, for many years in their seven year existence uh, uh, lagged the MISL in terms of average attendance in, in a couple of seasons actually was the dead last in attendance. Uh, this, however, despite, and you're going to hear all this from uh, from Ronnie in a, in a couple of moments, uh, a lot of opportunities and advantages uh, afforded this team, uh, that being owned by the Bus family, being in Los Angeles, uh, some of the synergies or at least promised synergies. Uh, but you will hear there were absolutely some obstacles too, uh, not necessarily the uh, the prime focus, I guess, of a, of a constellation, if you will, of sports assets. Uh, the lasers were often second uh, class, sometimes third class, arguably even fourth class citizens uh, within this empire. And uh, we get into sort of the uh, the opportunities and the bright lights and the uh, the lasers, of course, uh, figuratively and specifically. And the uh, you know, it just it just didn't take. However, that didn't stop uh, uh, Messrs. Weinstein and, and friends uh, from having a, a darn good time. Uh, as you'll hear in our conversation, uh, Jerry Buss and a lot of people in the organization felt that uh, it was probably the most entertaining of all the sports and all the uh, the stuff, aside maybe from some concerts, uh, part of the forum, uh, that they had. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of it was the game itself. Some of it was the, uh, the, uh, the things around L.A. that were uh, uh, garnering people's attention. The Lakers were hot uh, and hard to compete with, if you will, even in the same building. But no, this is a story of of intrigue. Uh, I, I learned a, a whole lot. Um, for example, I, I you know I guess depending on who you uh, who you uh, seek out uh, for history, uh, this was either an expansion franchise, as you heard uh, Al Troutwick sort of uh, describe, and, and Kyle wrote sort of uh, augment, uh, or it was a relocation of the Philadelphia Fever franchise that had been there for the original 
first four years of the MISL. I, it gets a little hazy, but by all indications, the uh, the charter, this franchise charter was that of the former Philadelphia Fever that uh, Jerry Buss either inherited or purchased. But, uh, you know, there is some conjecture as to whether this was a continuation uh, and an actual relocation of that Philadelphia Fever franchise, or it was essentially a reconstituted, if you will, new expansion franchise, just rehabilitating the old charter of the Philadelphia Fever. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure a few people might. My uh, pal uh, Ed Tepper might have the answer to that, uh, among others. But uh, I digress from the uh, main topic at hand. We're going to get into all the ups and downs of the Los Angeles Lasers MISL franchise. Uh, A fun story, right? There's a lot of fun involved here. uh, And it's not just about sort of uh, the challenges of running a team and and uh, and keeping uh, up with the Joneses, if you will, in L.A. sports. I, this is a story that uh, features uh, some interesting names like Cher and and Ricky Schroeder. Uh, James Kahn makes an appearance. Uh, Paula Abdul, uh, as we'll we'll get into. And and even Neil Diamond makes uh, makes an appearance as well uh, in this conversation with Ronnie Weinstein and the Los Angeles Lasers of the old MISL. Uh, it is uh, an intriguing conversation and uh you will love where it leads because already there's a uh, it's going to be a part two and you'll you'll understand why uh, in a few moments time as we get underway with our chat with Ronnie in just a moment uh, or two. We want to say hello to uh, our sponsors this week. Uh, and of course, it uh, it makes a ton of sense, uh, as you'll find out in a second. It's old school shirts, old school shirts dot com. And uh, it's uh, our uh, our friends, P.F. Wilson and his team uh, in Cincinnati. Great site, uh, great stuff, as you know by now. Hopefully, you've uh, gotten a taste of it, both uh, on a visit to the site as well as perhaps making a purchase or two. Uh, yes, it's all kinds of pop culture T-shirts and, and well-crafted and well-done uh, across a whole wide array of, of, of entertainment venues and, and radio stations of the past. And of course, uh, as we love and the show, forgotten sports teams and leagues and, uh, and celebrations of such in beautiful t-shirt and sweatshirt and uh, racerback tank shirt forms, you name them, they've got all kinds of different versions. And of course, this week is no exception. In particular, the Los Angeles laser shirt. Uh, It's a beautiful gray uh, with multiple sizes and multiple styles. You want a unisex t-shirt version. You want a women's v-neck version. uh, You want a hooded sweatshirt version. You want a crew neck sweatshirt. All of those and more are available in various sizes uh, to boot. Uh, with that stunning and very unique Los Angeles Lasers logo. And you'll hear in our conversation with Ryan in a few minutes. Uh, some great uh, stuff was made with that logo and probably among the most uh, sought after uh, in the collector's realm, uh, that L.A. Lasers uh, logo. Uh, but uh, that shirt or versions of shirt are available for you to choose from. From our friends at Old School Shirts, again, it's oldschoolshirts.com. And of course, we've got you covered with a promotional code that's going to save you 10% off all of your purchases, whether it's just that one shirt or many of the others that are available. Uh, and that's the promo code good seats. Yes. Make sure you use the promo code good seats, one word. And that's a uh, 10% off all of your purchases. Come early, come often to oldschoolshirts.com promo code good seats. Thank you. P F Wilson. Someday we're going to find out what the P and the F stand for, but uh, suffice to say we are uh, honored and uh, ecstatic to uh, continue to uh, be sponsored by them. Uh, they've been with us for a long time, and uh, you could do 
uh, us a favor by uh, buying a shirt. Why don't you? It helps us uh, keep our lights on and uh, also supporting a great little firm out in Cincinnati, oldschoolshirts.com. We appreciate them. We appreciate you giving a listen. Here's our chat with Ronnie Weinstein. Let's get into LA Lasers indoor soccer, shall we? Here it comes. Please enjoy. Why don't you give our audience a sense of, of uh, take us back to the early 80s, I guess. Uh, wh- where were you? What were you doing? And, and what was your sort of part of the universe that was Jerry Buss and Associates, if you will, and and the forum that maybe sort of leads up to our little lake, uh, lasers uh, exploration? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I love the word little that you threw in there. The word little is perfect. The little lasers exploration. That's exactly how we were treated in the forum. But we'll get there. So, um, but yeah. you were, you were though part of the, uh, of the bus family, uh, operations. Yeah. in the forum and what, what was your sort of role and how were you sort of, uh, uh, ensconced in all of this? Yeah. It's interesting because I started with actually Jack Kent Cook in 1978, uh, after I graduated college, I, I ended up at the forum with the Lakers and the Kings and all the entities there out of, uh, actually, a uh, a, a wonderful blessing. Uh, the gentleman that was the PR and promotions director at the Lakers and the Kings in the forum came down with an emergency appendectomy. And he and I were friendly during my UC Irvine days as uh, assistant uh, athletic director, student assistant athletic director, let me be clear there. And uh, he got behind in his work after he got hired by the Lakers in 77. I graduate in 78 and they pull me in. So that's how that all started. And then uh, Jack Kent Cook's right-hand man, a guy named Jim Locker, said, we're going to make you our, our you know, superstar sales guy here, puts his arm around me, tells me, walks me down the hall to Cook. And uh, I was supposed to be their golden child. Six months to nine months later, Jack Kent Cook's walking down the hall. Oh, you're going to like this. This works really well with your name, by the way. Jack Kent Cook's walking down the hall in the forum, and he puts his arm around me, and he goes, Tim, it's been nice working with you. So I must have not been too much of his golden child there. Um, and that's when Jerry Buss bought the building, and that's how it really started. So uh, the first person I met when Jerry Buss bought the building, coincidentally, I walked into a Laker practice, and I met Jeannie Buss and one of her friends. And so she was the first bus that I met, actually. And obviously that relationship now has lasted uh, 40, 42 years, I believe. Well, and, and somebody and somebody we uh, would love to get at some point uh, because her first uh, sort of taste, I guess, of pro sports was, I guess, peripherally with the uh, World Team Tennis franchise that was there. And then later on with Ro- Roller Hockey International. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that one separately. But I, I can imagine because... Not only you uh, sort of wet behind the ears coming right out of college, but you also have not only her, but it seems like a, a, a bunch of other bus family members that are also kind of, I don't know, getting the baptism by fire, too, as this thing was getting going. <laughs> his tutelage, yeah? yeah, that was the Jerry Bus way. Baptism by fire for not only his children, but his quasi-adopted son, Ron Weinstein. So, and And it was a hot fire, let me tell you, Tim. Um, that guy, that he was a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, we were running to, to, to segue into what you want to hear about. We were running 
at that time, we had developed uh, what's called the Senate Seat Program. And that was my work aspect, but I was also running the Laker King softball team. And if you uh, were, were privy to witness Tiger Woods and Mickelson and Manning and uh, uh, Brady playing golf this weekend, people that are playing outside of their sports don't do very well. So here I am batting cleanup with Magic Johnson, Michael Cooper, Marcel Dion, Charlie Simmer, and I thought it was my work. Kareem, the whole, the whole entity. So I got very involved socially and business-wise with the Lakers and the Kings and, and the Forum. And uh, what transpired after that, because of the Senate seat program and, and becoming close with the Buss family, you know, Jerry Buss came to Johnny, who had become one of my best friend, if not my one of my best friends. And, and John, I'm sorry to for our audience. Johnny is one of his sons, yeah. Yes, Johnny is the eldest. He is the elder statement. He is now the patriarch of the family. Yes. So, and again, as things evolve in this conversation, we'll get the all the dynamics of the Bus family. Yes. So, Johnny and I became very, very close. And after we developed the uh, the Senate program, which was the beginning of suites in the United States, actually in the world, uh, you know, Jerry Buss, brilliant, brilliant guy, as I stated earlier. And what happened was he he we actually changed the upholstery on the seats in the forum to make the seats striped. We put embossed tiles below people's feet and sent people up to the rafters and charged them. I want to say about $5,000 a seat for the entire year. So if you wanted a strip of four seats, it was 20 grand, but you, you received tickets to every event coming in and out of the forum. And this is obviously during the Magic Johnson era and when Showtime started. So we were obviously a very hot commodity in Southern California with Hollywood and the corporate world. And people bought these things and it was amazing, but we needed product in the building and that, <laughs> that's really the evolution of how the lasers were started. So when when Bus enters the picture from Jack Heck Hook to to uh, purchase uh, the, the forum and stuff, so remind our audience in the late seventies when that sort of transaction occurs. Uh, is that is that more Bus uh, thinking sports first then facility, or is it the opposite way? I would say it was the opposite way. Um, he had a passion, a hobby for sports which many of our mega million billionaire owners do, and his business was real estate. So he came from a real estate background knowing the value of the forum, knowing the value of the property, and knowing what he could do numbers-wise. I mean, again, uh, the things he did to transform the world of professional sports is beyond anyone's comprehension when you think about all the aspects he touched. I would say it was primarily a real estate move and a hobby to feed his enjoyment and to entertain his friends. Um, and here he, you know, here he is about to build the biggest, you know, showcase showtime team in our lifetime. Well, so it's also, uh, I guess, what in, in business school they would call vertical integration, right? Because not only does he have sort of ownership and or operational uh, oversight of uh, these budding sort of, shall we say, uh, uh, dominant teams, obviously the Lakers uh, in particular at that time. Um, it also now becomes, I guess, and you sort of use the word, right, content. And and 
what we could today call content, right? Events. Like, how do you keep this building humming? But, you know, but obviously being in the seat of, you know, uh, entertainment royalty, if you will, in the Los Angeles metro area, I mean, I think it's it's lost on a lot of people, I think, certainly today that, you know, this was uh, the showcase uh, place for indoor sports. I mean, the L.A. sports, uh, the L.A. sports, what was it called? The L.A., what was the one up in near USC? The L.A., not the Coliseum. Arena. Sports Arena. There you go. Um, you know, I, longer in tooth, shall we say, and not nearly as uh, fancy and new and, and showcasey, right? But uh, with two M- with an NBA team and an NHL team, uh, and obviously concerts galore, it doesn't seem like initially there would be a real shortage of stuff to to put into that arena. But but I guess I'm wrong. Well. You're not necessarily wrong, which, again, we'll transition later. But we definitely needed more product. But the, what we, where we needed product was in the, the dog days of summer, and we didn't have that. But, you know, so we had to transform and find things that we could join into unless we were about to start our own league, which we didn't do at the time. And the best opportunity out there, aside from team tennis, was the major indoor soccer league. All right, so so tell me what you were sort of up to. You were getting the the sort of the uh, uh, the suite sort of going. Arguably, that's probably one of the uh, first in the country, I guess, to kind of get that what is now just kind of commonplace sort of uh, revenue stream going. Um, what were you doing, and then what were you all scrambling around for? I guess when it came to other kinds of events, I'm sure the MISL was not the first thing. Uh, that came across your radar or, you know, how, give me a sense of the germination of that idea. Like why even consider it? Well, that's a great question because at the time I was actually working, you know, very diligently on the Senate seed program, the suite extensions and selling those seats. And like I said, having fun running the Laker King baseball team and I was also trying to deal with the dynamics of Jerry Buss and the way he lives his life. And he had a lot of uh, women around, and men, actually, um, that he was very uh, endeared to, that he put into the organization that I had to work with. So actually, at that transition, when this was all germinating, uh, one of these lovely people proceeded to walk into his office and said, told him I said something derogatory about him. So he called me into his office and he said to me, is it true that you called me a blank? And uh, here I am, I think at this time, I don't even know. I was probably 25 years old, maybe 24, I'm not sure, Tim. And uh, here I am dumbfounded, here's Jerry Buss, the Jerry Buss, calling me out alone in his big office with, I want to say at that time, probably one or two championship trophies behind him. And... I kind of took a little bit of a sabbatical right then. Um, But Johnny, his eldest son, prodded me to come back in because Jerry did not approach me, obviously, at this time. He approached Johnny. But I was still involved with the family on a social level where Jerry would invite Johnny to certain events and Johnny would bring me with him. Um, But it was very interesting because Johnny called me and he said, I got a call from my dad. And he said, he wants us to explore bringing in an MISL team. And I don't know. And I don't think Johnny would even know to this moment where that germination started. Like what made Jerry Buss 
broach the issue of the MISL. I cannot tell you that because I don't think I knew. And I, before he passed away, I don't think we, anybody ever asked him. So he came to Johnny and I, to, to Johnny. Johnny calls me on the phone. He says, you got to get back here, you know, and uh, that's, how, that, that's how it started. Interesting. Well, this is, I mean, we've done a, a bunch of uh, discussions around the MISL, uh, both uh, at all different sort of uh, times of it, many, many more things to go. But I, this, I guess we're talking about 1981 or so when the franchise was awarded, right? So this is, you know, I this, that year or so was is kind of when the league was really starting to kind of get some, some heat. I mean, I think the Sports Illustrated article and you had the steamers in St. Louis who were sort of, you know, in their initial year, you're just drawing more fans, frankly, than even some N- uh, NBA and NHL franchises. And I think, too, I, you know, we've had some other conversations with uh, some other owners like uh, Ron Mayer for, from uh, the uh, old Denver Avalanche. I mean, I think there was sort of a uh, – it was a very bright, shiny object. And I think the MISL, uh, you know, to their credit, I guess, you know, were hustling in the, in the, the greatest sense of the word and, and using – Weekends in in St. Louis and the pack building and the smoke and the mirrors, literally and figuratively, I guess, uh, you know, uh, it was kind of an allure. It was kind of like catnip, especially when, you know, uh, obviously in L.A., the NBA was sort of a different experience. It was because 80, you had the the Lakers championship. But, um, you know, the NBA itself was still, you know, kind of overhung from the 70s. And certainly the Kings in the NHL were not really a thing very much at that time either. So I guess there's sort of an allure for some more sexiness, I guess. Uh, and, and L.A., of course, seemed probably was on, on the MISL's, MISL's wish list, too. A hundred percent. And I think they were looking to take it to the next level with that attraction, with that with the lure of L.A. and the championships and the Lakers. And whoever got in Jerry Buss's ear did a dang good job because Johnny and I proceeded to fly to St. Louis to witness a game, and we were dumbfounded. It was an amazing experience to walk into the, uh, I want to say it was the Checker Dome or something. Um, you're, again, you're testing my memory. Um, and we, like I said, it was an amazing experience, but we had come out of, you know, the Laker championships and, you know, the Magic Johnsons and the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar era. And we were looking for something that would still have that, you know, that pizzazz and sizzle. And I think at that time, we believed we found it in the MISL, at least from a, a a game standpoint, not from a business standpoint. How much between you and Johnny, like, let's put it this way, co- collectively, and I'm trying to be diplomatic here, collectively, how much, shall we say, quote unquote, experience did you guys have in, shall we say, evaluating a, a possibility of, of a new league and a new franchise, right? Were you both relatively... I won't say naive, but but new to the <laughs> new to the proceeding, shall we say, right? Uh, do I have to tell you the truth, or do, well, do you want me yeah, to? I mean, my... I'm just trying to get a sense of what's what your dynamic is like. You're you're being brought back to the to the family, so to speak, and and I don't know. You know, some some could argue, and this is very hindsight. It's just me sort of talking here, but a, a lot of things can be you know very intriguing and exciting. But you know, the economy's not doing that great, and uh, you know, St. Louis is not every city in the league, and you know. Yep, I understand. I would say. Naivete would be a great word, Tim. And uh, I, I think we thought we were better than we were. So to answer that question truthfully, I, we were not prepared. We were not 
accurate at all with our assumptions, our financial assumptions. But at the same time, which I'm sure we'll get to, uh, we could have done a heck of a lot better if things would have been handled differently within the building, within the forum, and behind the Lakers and the LA Kings and every concert walking into that room. So we'll take some of the blame, but I'm not taking all of it. No, no, no. But you wouldn't you wouldn't be the first uh, entity or person that we talked to about sort of, you know, you kind of in your own building, actually, the third sort of pecking order for uh, for dates. I mean, I, I we talked to uh, a co-founder of the league, Ed Tepper, a number of months ago. And, you know, he's he's getting this this franchise for himself in New Jersey at the, the new then Brendan Burns slash Meadowlands Arena. And, you know, behind the Nets and the Devils, you know, they, they got Tuesday night dates. Right. That, that doesn't that's not a great a great way to sort of start, especially when you're trying to do a fledgling sport that there's not a lot of, shall we say, history behind. But there had to be something, right? So besides the St. Louis sort of trek and all that stuff, there's clearly buzz, right? So what of this MISL and this allure of bringing a team to Los Angeles, what was was on the positive side of the ledger between you two? What were you, like, what was the spark of excitement that kind of got you going and, and kept you sort of focused on it besides... Jerry saying this is a great idea. I think two things. Uh, n- number one, the game itself. The game itself speaks for itself. I, I, I still to this day, and again, like I said, we'll get to it later, think it should be the number two sport in the United States. Number two or number three sport in the United States, indoor soccer. If it would have been handled appropriately from the beginning years, from the MISL through the CISL. Um, so I think the game itself, the product for television, the product for uh, fan viewing, the excitement as people's, uh, you know, I, I, I equate it a lot to baseball. If you tried to develop baseball in 2020 and told a bunch of people that 10 guys are going to, nine guys are going to stand around a field and guys going to throw the ball 95 miles an hour and some guy's going to try to hit it with a stick, not a lot of people would come out. We had, develop, we had to develop a game and a spirit that was attractive to what was happening within society. And society was now starting to gear up and the attention span, and they needed that shot in the arm. They needed something a little more exciting along the lines of Showtime. And we felt that the game of indoor soccer had that ability and had the ability to attract a whole different audience with the numbers of people that were out there starting to get engaged in and another misconception in the sport of soccer, which would translate hopefully into the indoor game. Now, this is also the time, though, so uh, that the Los Angeles Aztecs, outdoor-wise, right, were, you know, along with the outdoor league, you know, starting to uh, started seeing the sort of the, the decline, and and the outdoor game in Los Angeles at that time, the Aztecs, right, uh, uh, some some pretty darn good talent and and players, and you know, Johan Neeskins and and. and uh, sort of the almost the the sort of the Dutch sort of uh, West Coast version, if you will, play and stuff. But they never really Elton John's ownership earlier in the de- in the seventies. It never really took uh, fan wise the outdoor version of the sport in Los Angeles. Really, was there any trepidation uh, in your guys' mind about this, or or did you think that the indoor version was just so different and or more of a spectacle than it was uh, a reflection? I guess perhaps on the, the version, the, the soccer specifically. I'd say that's accurate. I think we thought it was a spectacle and we thought it was America's game versus the international game. 
and we thought we were going to develop a sport and a game that was more attractive to the American audience than the world game of outdoor soccer football. And I think, again, a misconception. And it, there was a tremendous amount of discussion um, behind the scenes, not with the MISL, about even changing the word from soccer. Because even to this day, I can talk about the history, and people hear the word soccer and say, I was never a soccer fan. When I was that age, I was never a soccer fan. I didn't like the game of soccer. It was slow and boring. Well, did you ever see an indoor game? No. So we thought we were developing a product, if it had the proper exposure, that would attract the American audience and it would be fun for everybody, you know, whether you're a football fan, a basketball fan, a hockey fan, a baseball fan, it would attract all across the board. And again, didn't translate that way because the word, I think there was a tremendous amount of uh, lashback actually from having the word soccer incorporated in our name. It was, it was difficult to lure people in the building. They, they, they thought they were taking an outdoor soccer field and placing it inside the forum. That's how much they knew at the time. So I got to think the, uh, the Earl Foreman and, and Ed Tepper and, and the MISL uh, establishment was somebody just salivating, uh, not only at Los Angeles as a market and, uh, you know, the television opportunities and all that stuff, but frankly, uh, the interest somehow uh, uh, engendered by, by Jerry Buss, right? This is, you know, in a very few short years, I mean, you, you, the, the Forum was probably the hottest arena uh, in the United States uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. So... How did you guys sort of go to town, so to speak? What was your what was your vision for getting this franchise up and running and and noticed, if you will, uh, amongst the populace in Los Angeles? Obviously, you had a bit of a halo uh, with the Lakers, but that that can't do everything for you. No, and it, and <laughs> no, but we definitely tried to piggyback on everything we did uh, with the Lakers and the Kings, and it, and again. Johnny's in my vision, Johnny Buss's in my vision, was far different than those that were working inside the forum at that time. They, by their own accord and probably their own admission to this day, would tell you that their focus, you, you said the third tenant, I would say we were closer to the fourth or fifth tenant inside the building. So, behind, behind what else? Was that the, 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 I'm assuming the brimming concert market? Oh, the concert market was, I, you know... Uh, jumping ahead a little bit, there were El John came in, and we I think we had one Saturday night date scheduled out of I think we had uh, I don't even remember how many games we played I think we had 48 games, and out of our 24 home games, I think we had one or two Saturdays or what have you, and he actually said I'm going to add another date, and they moved us to a Monday three weeks before a game. This is how we were treated, so. You know, which leads to the transition of what happened family-wise, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get there again. But the reality is we were behind the Lakers, the Kings, concerts. I think team tennis was a, uh, a an endeared piece. You know, Jeannie was very close with her father, and it was their first dive into professional sports. And I think that was always a favorite child as well. Um, not that they got in our way very much. Um, so I would say we were definitely number four at, at the, at the very least. That's interesting. But, but you also had though, you had a product though, right? I mean, this is the MISL coming to town, right? So there's, there's sexiness there, right? And, and I think 
we've heard this time and time again from people involved in the old MISL. It was almost the, and you guys experienced it, I guess, in St. Louis and maybe some other uh, tastes of it, but it's it's the, and I'm sure you felt this way, but I'll, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's kind of like, once you see it, you're going to get hooked, right? But the key, the key is, how do you get people there? And obviously not having attractive nights or dates uh, doesn't help that case, does it? No, no. The dates were the worst, especially during the winter months when kids are in school. Um, play, playing this sport in the winter, you know, from from day one was, uh, uh, in, in our vision, was an error. And so to try to get good dates behind the NBA, the NHL, and then, you know, to compete with the NFL, college football, college basketball was absurd. Um, you're going to be a stepchild not only in Los Angeles, but you're going to be a stepchild nationally. And that's 100% what transpired. Lasers hope to sting Chicago April 5th at the Forum. It was difficult. Uh, we pulled out a lot of stops at the Forum. And finally, after Johnny and I begged continuously of the president of the Forum and his father, we started to get a little more attention, and the Lakers started promoting the Lasers, and we started using a, an entity that we had put together inside the forum called Fair Exchange. So we take a lot of Laker tickets and King tickets and concert tickets and bundle them and trade out for certain items. And one of the items we traded out for was with World Airways, if you remember that airline. Oh, sure. So we actually... You had a long-distance People Express, kind of, right? There you go. So we actually made a trade with all those tickets with World Airways and the Lakers and the Kings were promoting that if you attended, I want to say it was 14 laser games at $7 a ticket, you do the math, I think it's uh, 98 or something, $98, and you got to go to 14 laser games. All you had to do is check in, Tim. <laughs> I can check see. In. You could walk in the building, you could walk in the building, have your ticket stamped or punched or whatever the heck it was. And you could walk out and do that 14 times for $98. And we gave you a round trip ticket to Hawaii. I am telling you, I don't believe we had more than 500 people in the greater LA area take advantage of this ridiculous gift to expose. And that's how hard it was to get people to come inside to watch quote unquote soccer at the time and a great game. And I'll, I'll tell you, take it a step further. Jerry Buss made a public announcement that is, he has a better time attending the late laser games than any other sport in his building because he loves the game and he loves the lack of the pressure because it's not big business. And he made that very public and it was still difficult.
Okay, what's this? Ah, yes, the new book by Diane Shaw. I am happy and ecstatic to recommend it. It's called A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. Who is Diane Shaw, you may ask, and what's it about? Well, Diane Shaw is a uh, a writer of mystery novels and biographies and other, other great works. But before that, uh, you may have known her in the 1960s and 1970s as the pioneering female sports journalist that kind of broke through the barriers, the glass ceilings, if you will, uh, becoming really the first uh, major national newspaper sports columnist who happened to be female at the uh, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, for, uh, for that matter. And uh, it, her book uh, is just, it's just chock full of great anecdotes. It's a memoir of all of her trials and travails, shall we say, uh, in trying to cover sports in this country as a woman. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, you young whippersnappers, you have no idea how challenging it was. And there's a whole generation and then some of female sports reporters and columnists and writers and, and on-air personalities who can uh, owe their careers uh, to the doors that uh, she uh, just uh, plowed through uh, back uh, back in the day. And uh, some great stories and some great uh, anecdotes. And, and one that we especially love uh, features a certain United States president uh, and uh, some interesting times when he was uh, running a team and then trying to bulldoze his way through uh, the old USFL, the New Jersey Generals in particular. Uh, I'm not going to repeat the story here. It's well worth <laughs> the price of admission in this book alone. And uh, we uh, highly encourage you uh, to check it out wherever fine books are found. It's called A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. It is published by the Indiana University Press and their imprint, Red Lightning Books. And we thank both of them uh, for uh, offering our listeners an exclusive free chapter download. Uh, right now, You just all you have to do is visit this little uh, website. And I'll repeat it again because it's a little clunky. Uh, and you're going to get a free special uh, sneak peek, free chapter of the book, A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. Just go to this website, iupress.org slash jockstraps dash good seats. That's iupress.org. It's I, the letter I, the letter U, press, iupress.org slash jockstraps, one word, dash good seats, one word. And again, you're going to get a free special sneak peek, a free chapter download of the brand new book by Diane Shaw, A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. Uh, if you don't remember that uh, URL, we'll have a link to it on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com uh, off of this episode. And um, you will enjoy this book. I guarantee it. And I appreciate the friends, our friends, our new friends at Red Lightning Books and Indiana, Indiana University Press, hard to say, uh, for their sponsorship and uh, bringing our attention uh, to this great book by Dan Diane Shaw. He says, a farewell to arms, legs, and jockstraps. Uh, I know you'll enjoy the free sample, and I know you'll enjoy the book. Try it out, and uh, as they say, you'll be glad you did. All right, back to our uh, conversation. Here it comes. What did the league do, if anything, to help the cause, right? I, uh, I, I'm trying to remember in my Wayback Machine, you know, the MISL was... Uh, uh, the national games were on the USA Network, the fledgling USA Network with Al Troutwick and, and Kyle Roden. I think I remember at least one, if not two, laser games in that early time. And, and uh, I, you know, it, it was absolutely sort of the, hey, we're in L.A., it's Hollywood and, and all that kind of stuff. And actually, do I remember correctly, I think, calling out some celebs that might have been in the audience? I think there, I seem to remember, and, and don't, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Gabe Kaplan was at one of them for some reason. <laughs> 
Gabe Kaplan was there. Gabe Kaplan was uh, a poker playing partner of Jerry Buss and his partner, Frank Mariani. So there was a, a friendly family relationship there. So, yes, that is extremely true. So we, how, we, how much other arm twisting was there with other celebrities, I guess, then? I wouldn't even say there was arm twisting because, like you said, the product speaks for itself. And once people were exposed to it, and a lot of these celebrities at the time, and, 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 and I'll just run through. First of all, Ricky Schroeder was extremely young at the time, soccer playing. He was very famous on whatever TV show he was on. Um, Cher had a child. Neil Diamond had a child. James Kahn had kids. All these guys had their kids that wanted to go see professional soccer. And they wanted to be part of the forum, Pizzazz, and Jerry Buss. So they, they definitely brought their kids to the game. And then we all became friendly. But it never took that, you know, that snowball effect, you know, rolling down the mountain. And it never, they kept coming, but it never caught on publicly. And I think a lot of it has to do, with going back to what you said, it, it became ridiculous within our own building to beg the Lakers and the Kings and the staff to treat the Lasers as it's your newborn child, that you want to evolve into a premier product. And I can tell you for the entire length of the Los Angeles Lasers, that never transpired. And I think that's what drove Johnny to the brink. All right. Before we get to that sort of uh, 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 that's that situation, uh, it does. So I got the two uh, areas that I want to sort of poke around. Uh, one's an urban legend. Maybe we'll start with that one. I don't know if it's urban legend. It's real. But. Uh, like a lot of teams uh, and a lot of uh, uh, markets, the sort of um, show before the game, so to speak, right? Which was, uh, I think, one of the, I think in the arena and ownership crowd, uh, you know, the Lywicki brothers and, the, you know, the exploding this and the mirror ball that and the thumping music and the steam and all that stuff, as I'm sure you will sort of agree, right? The MISL back in the late 70s, early 80s almost was the progenitor or the harbinger of what is now just taken for granted as sort of the spectacle before the game starts. The lasers didn't uh, uh, shy away from any of that stuff, right? As a matter of fact, it seems like it even attracted what I think was a major musician superstar who was intrigued by the intro to the games. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're hundred percent correct. You know, the, uh, the wiki brothers did an unbelievable job developing i think they they were definitely trendsetters as you said and began that pizzazz which became which is now just commonplace and everybody expects it we do it now at the laker games and what have you and it started back in the late 70s early 80s and we being in la had to make sure we were like premier premier showcase but this is all part of the problem because what you have here tim is a lot of people spending money on promotions and all kinds of, you know, pizzazz and fanfare, not worried about the business side, which we'll get to. And the laser light show, thank God, once again, I'm pretty sure, once again, we traded out for those laser lights. And lasers in the early 80s, the actual light, not our team, the lasers in the early 80s were um, uh, definitely at the onset of that technology. And... And we just actually found this company that were, were, was dying to get into the entertainment industry. We made a trade with them. 
we played popular songs. Um, we played, uh, uh, you know, Eye of the Tiger. We played uh, Down Under. We play, We had all kinds of, and these laser lights were able to pick images on the walls as the team was being announced or as they made a goal, et cetera, et cetera, and take it a step further. We actually made an arrangement with the original Ghostbusters, and we had their ambulance from the movie come and drive onto the field every game, and the players would come out of the ambulance from the movie Ghostbusters, and we would call them Goalbusters. So, I mean, we didn't pull, we didn't pull any stops. We pulled all the stops out, Tim. We, we did everything. And now the lasers, the lights, translated into my relationship, which um, on a very small basis continues today with Neil Diamond. So all of a sudden I get a phone call one day and I'm sitting in my office and it's the president of the forum. It's 1982. It's our first year, I think. And I get a call and uh, her name is Claire and she calls me down to the turf. She goes, I have somebody I want to meet you to meet and he wants to meet you. And I walk down there and sure enough, it's Neil Diamond. You know, here I am now, what am I, 26? I don't even know how old. Very close. And here's one of my childhood teenage idols, Neil Diamond, you know, standing on our turf. And everything went downhill from there, Tim, because the guy is standing on our AstroTurf, because obviously we had to have the best AstroTurf. I, I don't even remember the name of it. And it was over $100,000, our turf. And here's Neil Diamond back in the early 80s, smoking cigarettes on the AstroTurf. <laughs> and I say to the guy, Mr. Diamond, this is AstroTurf. Well, whatever. It was the beginning of a, a love affair. And uh, so we got along very well. And he attended his, the games. His son, Micah, who now has children, by the way, <laughs> you know, it's been a long time, um, went to our laser indoor soccer camp and actually Neil's wife at the time, Marcia, Johnny and I gave them Letterman's jackets uh, with the laser logos embroidered on them and the big, colorful, beautiful logo, which I still think to this day is one of the best logos yeah, ever. That's, that's a collector's item amongst the uh, uh, the, the savvy, uh, for sure. That's probably the, the most uh, sought after of all the MISL sort of uh, jackets, if you will. Yeah, that laser, that laser logo was pretty sweet. So... Anyway, here come, we give it to Marsha and Neil. And sure enough, he comes into the forum during a Laker game. He and Marsha are in the floor seats, and obviously it's 17,505 watching Magic play. And he's wearing his laser indoor soccer jacket. And that made it all worthwhile right there. So, yeah, he became a fan, and uh, he, he was good to us. And, uh, but he, like I said, he, he was one of many that came through there. And I just, uh, one that we, you probably don't even know about, we turned this guy away, came to our tryouts. I don't know if you remember, we used to have these crazy tryouts where we would just open the doors and like for eight hours. Well, in comes this guy. We don't know who he is. And he's, he's very mediocre. And uh, let me put it this way. I think a year later, he's sitting ringside with Jerry Buss at a boxing event. And it was Tone Loke. So, you know, we didn't make the best choices. But uh, 
We had a lot of celebs coming in and out of the building. In his pre, pre-wild thing uh, uh, days, I guess. So, all right. So, but let me ask you this, though. It also does seem like you were trying to graft as much, uh, I'm guessing Lakers in particular, Kings probably less so, right, at the time, uh, uh, goodness, right? Because obviously they're, you know, it's it's, it's the, 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 the major attraction in that building in town. It's the beginnings of showtime. Um, the Laker girls, I guess, were put into double duty too, right? Yeah, yeah. that uh, that was this was another nice thing that the Lakers and the Forum did for us. They made the Laker girls Laser Girls. It was the exact same staff, um, you know, and it was a it was a beautiful relationship. And the problem is, once again, you. They never they never segued the two, so people didn't even understand that it's the same girls. They didn't publicize it. And, you know, we didn't have the use of social media, obviously, back then, so there was no way to display that. But yeah, every game, the uh, the Laker girls became the Laser girls, and which translated into more love life and love affairs through through the building. And I say that because Paula Abdul, who most of your listeners know, <laughs> um, became Johnny Buss's girlfriend during that period of time for a while. Uh-huh. And so we did a lot of double dating with Paula. And, uh, you know, we had a great time. There's no question about it. It seemed like we had all the pieces of the puzzle in place, except we were riding the wave of, like, I'll call it the Tim Wiki theories of, it's all the hype and flash and flair and glamour, and I and people lose, lost sight of the business, and we got sucked right into that. All right. Well, uh, give me a sense then of of the league itself. How uh, you guys are obviously not doing well in relation, I guess, to the attendance elsewhere in the league. But you know, you can make arguments that you know there were other you know places that were not doing. Uh, tremendously well. I mean, there were a lot of highs and, and frankly, a, a more lows, I guess, w- across the league. Um, but maybe uh, you could also juxtapose the league and, and how they were either helping or hindering with uh, this transition that you alluded to before. Johnny in 85, I guess, had had enough in some way, shape, or form. I, I, I'm guessing not just the lasers uh, specifically, or maybe it was, but maybe you can kind of walk us through that sort of transition. And frankly, also... On the field, I know that first year was not great on the field in terms of performance, but you guys were kind of stabilizing somewhat uh, the next couple of years, though, right on the field. Yeah, yeah. On the field of play, I thought we were doing great, okay? You know, when you play 8-40 and 40 the first year and then transitioned, I think we came close to 500. We were making progress, just as you said, and we were taking a very slow, methodical approach and basically financially. I think that the downplay thought, we at that time we thought you could transition a an outdoor player into an indoor player, and the games are so different that it became this theory of we should go to every college in the United States and find their best track star and teach them how to play indoor soccer because it's such a speed related game um, that I think we 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 thought we could transition outdoor soccer players to indoor, which was something we we didn't address was we actually went way overboard one of the most scary trips of my life johnny and i flew down to mexico and met with this guy named i believe it was Azcaraga, and he owned televisa which owned club america sure 
and we bought a player named Batata who had played with Pele and we didn't know who Batata was. We just heard that there's this great player and he wants to move to the States and we should go get Batata. And we wrote a check. Literally, the guy said, you need to come down here and hand this man the check directly. You know, I talk about, you know, thinking you were in, in harm's way. And we delivered a $250,000 check. And if you could imagine that kind of money for an indoor soccer player to buy his rights, we bought him and brought him to California. Then we brought him to Disneyland, and you would have swore we had Magic Johnson with us. That guy was swarmed by people every step we took that recognized him from Club America. And it was a, and we said, okay, this is it. We found the magic formula. And obviously we were not, we were not right once again. And uh, because it took him, it was very difficult for him to make that transition. And I believe Peter Wall, it took him a while. He was our coach. And it took him a while to understand that he couldn't get all his outdoor soccer connections and get them to adapt to the indoor game. They were extremely different. So we did struggle. We struggled on the field at the beginning, but slowly but surely we made very, very positive transitional steps. Um, And to answer your question now about Johnny, yeah, I believe it was solely indoor soccer. And I think it became a family dynamic, which, you know, (laughs) continues to my job in 2020, working with the family dynamic and how we were treated inside the building. And I really believe that was the most frustrating part. And he just said, look, if we're not going to be given a chance to be successful, I'm out of here. And he just couldn't handle it anymore. You know, he couldn't handle the constant battle between, you know, the, the I won't call it the Lakers and the Kings and the Lakers, because it's really, because everybody in the building was supposed to be doing everything. But when you're treated like a stepchild for three years in a row, I think that's what sent him over the edge. Right. And, and actually, that's it's, it's interesting because that's also kind of a, a, almost the modern model now, right, where, where you vertically integrate uh, the building and the and the, the content and, and try to own as much of the the revenue streams over all of it. Right. And then, frankly, spread spread the love. You can make the argument that, say, Major League Soccer has done quite a bit of that, say, uh, sharing resources, if you will, and and. You know, it's kind of the, uh, uh, I want to call it lowest common denominator, but, you know, the idea to spread on the broadcast side, right? You you borrowed heavily from, I think, the Lakers uh, broadcast. I mean, I think uh, Chick Hearn did a couple of games, and you helped nurture uh, people like Joel Myers, you know, on when your, your fledgling cable thing was up and running. So it, it seems like the, the idea of having sort of a, 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 I don't know, a family of brands, literally and figuratively, right, uh, it was not a sort of a bad idea and, frankly, a, a way to share resources. But and look, I, you know, you look back on it, those first three seasons. I mean, you know, you, you're I think you're being a bit modest. I mean, you went from eight and 40 that first year to two 500 uh, seasons thereafter. And the, and the attendance was uh, slowly but surely kind of uh, uh, rising a little bit. Right. There had to be some glimpse of uh, of hope, I guess. But uh, I also think, too, that maybe around, you know, 1985 or so, specifically the you know, what you're going through in L.A., it's also the league is is having its own sort of growing and or sideways pains, too. Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. I think it, I think it, that's, that's 
a great point because I think it was the league, the league approach or lack of approach to bi- the business model and Johnny's emotions got in the way. There, I would say 100% it was a combination of the two. And Johnny's an extremely sensitive, emotional guy. And I think it got the best of him. And I, I, I can, listening to you and reminiscing and bringing back a lot of memories, you know, I have a lot of feelings, whether it pertains to the CISL or the MISL or the lasers. If things would have been handled differently, I, I think for the entire league, it would have it would have changed, and that's when the transition came, like you said, and 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 when the, once the transition happened with Johnny stepping aside, the writing was on the wall, the writing was on the wall for sure. Well, and what was that transition? Right, that was that was his brother coming in, and I'm guessing Dr. Jerry took a little bit more. Uh, is it fair to say hands-on interest too? Then, yeah, perfect. So Johnny steps away. Jimmy, who, you know, it's no secret, had his own personal issues going on. Jerry, trying to be a good father, brings Jimmy involved in the loop, trying to give him something to do, knows that I'm going to try to watch his back the best I can. And, you know, but I, you know, I'm not his father and I'm not even his older brother. So it was obviously my hands were tied. But, but your role, I'm sorry to clarify though, your role is almost like kind of a COO, right? To the, to the, to the, shall we say the executive oversight of the team? Is that fair to say? I would say I was not the final decision maker. Obviously Jerry always was. His sons, obviously Johnny was, and then Johnny and I collaborated on everything. I think that, that collaboration ended when Jimmy took over. I think there was, de- you know, there was a lot of jealousy there. Johnny, Johnny and I were best friends. Johnny was in my wedding. So, and he, here he leaves me, and, <laughs> and here comes Jim Buss, who had zero, probably, experience business-wise. After we had three years under our belt, J- Johnny was running a real estate division for Jerry prior to the Lasers, so he had a business background to some degree, and here we are, almost back to square one. And who am I to tell Jim Buss what to do and how to do his business? You know, and so some of the hirings, the player hirings, the coaches hirings, like I said, the, the writing was on the wall as far as we were internally. And then you ask the question, sure enough, first time ever, Jerry Buss steps up to the plate and goes with us to a league meeting in Cleveland with Jim because he's watching to see if his son can handle it. He turns to, uh, I want, I, Bart Wolstein was involved. I can't even remember who was involved. I'm sure, obviously, Earl was there. And he turns to the group, but here we are, a, a team that's averaging whatever, four or 5,000 people a game. Um, and he turns to the group and he says, unless you start paying your players less and start gradually moving the, your season to summer, you are going to fail. And if I am the MISL and a guy with the credibility, and I look at, I'm not a front runner. I'm not kissing the guy's butt. He doesn't live with us anymore. Comes into the room and gives you some advice. You should heed that warning. And nobody, nobody heeded his warning. And the rest is history as it pertains to what happened to the MISL. And, you know, he, he was right spot on with his assessment. You know, here we were paying players. There was no salary caps, and we kept trying to raise it. 
and you're pay- every team's losing money, and you're raising your salary caps and trying to control it after the horse left the barn. Well, it's also around the time that the Outdoor League collapsed, right? And 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 the MISL, in some respects, was almost a, a victim of its own success. It had, had successfully, I guess, outlasted the outdoor game and become, if you will, the only true top-tier pro version of, of soccer in the U.S. And I guess along with that, the expectations of top talent to get paid. These guys, look, my frustration level, you can raise my blood pressure right now, Tim, my... And we're not even talking about the CISL yet. So (laughs) they made a huge blunder because there's no question in my mind, knowing I've been involved now for 42 years or something. Yeah, I guess that's exact. 42 years I've been in professional sports. I am telling you without hesitation that the indoor game should have been the third most popular sport at least uh, capacity-wise, in this country in 2020, if it would have been handled properly. What gave you and Jim and, and certainly Jerry the notion that the summertime was the better time? Was it largely because of being so close to a major arena's operations and knowing that the summertime was the darkest, if you will, or hardest to fill? Or, or, or was it also, I don't know, observations maybe of the MISL product and the fact that you're also close to two of the now, I would argue, more resuscitated indoor leagues in the NHL and the NBA that arguably were becoming more juggernaut-like and that the MISL would never sort of capture that what maybe they got through in a couple of years in the early part of the decade. Could not compete against the NBA and the NHL in buildings in the winter. You could not, you could not attract the major markets in the winter. Um, people go to school. People are people are working. Who's coming out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night to go to um, a game that you're trying to make a family-oriented game? None of it made sense business-wise, and. The more we looked at it, the more we looked at it, it was like you take baseball. There's, look at attendance figures. Attendance figures are still the biggest on Saturdays and Sundays in the summer. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. As long as you have those weekend dates, people are, it's not necessarily people are looking to go outdoors and do things outdoors like go to baseball or go to a fair or go to a park. They're looking to get out. And whether it means get out and go to an arena or get out and go to an outdoor facility, they, they work hand-in-hand hand with each other. And it was so hard to get these people in the MISL to understand that. Like, why, are you, why, why do you think the other NBA owners aren't jumping on board? Why do you think the big stadiums aren't, the big arenas aren't jumping on board? The big markets aren't jumping on board? Why'd you lose Chicago? Why'd you lose New York? Well, you know, it, the only one that was actually – break and rank a little bit there was Dallas. Um, but you, we couldn't get them to wake up. And, and I think we couldn't get them to wake up because nobody took us seriously. And I think if Johnny Buss would have stayed at the helm, they probably would have taken us more seriously. All right. Well, let, let's round this one because I, I know you want to sort of move on with your life today as we record this and <laughs> set, setting the scene for, for what I hope will be our next conversation at some point soon. So 
but you you know okay the, the the gauntlet has sort of been thrown i guess or at least the the idea and the uh guidance shall we say uh out there amongst the misl board of governors and whatnot but it, it it's you still kept at it for another three seasons um Maybe you can kind of walk us through a little bit of, of that and the denouement, if you will, because there was sort of a last glimmer of of success. I mean, you had a, a, your biggest attendance in, in 87, 88. Uh, you made the first round of the playoffs. You finished second in the Western Division. But, you know, how much of a fait accompli was it? And maybe when when was sort of the, the final action sort of taken and maybe what precipitated it to finally call it quits in the MISL? I believe it was the salary cap that precipitated it or the lack thereof, the control of it, and the amount of money every team was losing. If the Lake, if the Forum, and we were California Sports, that was our parent company, was losing the kind of money we were losing, Tim, knowing that we owned our own building, we owned our own building, we owned our own television network and prime prime network, um, and we're losing the kind of money we were losing, unless they made a change and attracted the big advertisers and a better con- television contract where we were making money again, not behind, you know, not treated as a stepchild nationally. I would believe, I believe that was probably the nail in the coffin because we continuously lost a tremendous, a tremendous amount of money. And I couldn't look Jerry Buss in the face because he reminded me way too many times how much money we had lost. Um, and, I think that that was the that was probably the the nail in the coffin and and the fact that nobody took us seriously and listened to us. I think you ask the question, why did we play another three years? Number one, Jimmy brought in Keith Tozer. Jimmy brought in some of his buddies. You know, we made a we made a coaching change. Whether it's for better or for worse, we don't need to go there. Um, and I think Jerry was giving Jimmy an opportunity to be successful financially and uh, on, on and off the field. And I don't believe Jimmy ever stepped up to help things. And, and, and I'm not even going to blame Jimmy because he was too young. He was wet behind the ears to help this thing financially along. I mean, that was not his passion. He, 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 he was definitely his father's son. There's no question about it. He loved to have a good time, just like his father. Only his father made his millions first before he started having a lot of fun. Do you do you think um, uh, the the history of of quote unquote television and sports? I mean, obviously, being owning the prime sports thing, which which was arguably the fledgling, I guess, beginnings of of what was becoming what is now known today, sort of as regional sports networks and stuff. I mean, you, you wonder if if it had. Well, maybe we'll get into this in the in our second conversation. But um, I, I guess the television revenue thing was never really as um, pronounced as it wound up becoming, and more obvious, I guess, in the decade to follow it almost you you wonder if you could have somehow grafted uh this league maybe a little bit later in life when the economics of television was a bit more uh, obvious and robust because it clearly seems to me that that the lasers were as the league itself right very dependent on attendance right as part of the revenue stream yeah uh, attendance but to play off what you said and i think we packaged it again with the lakers and the kings and i would say that was a plus for california sports packaging the lasers with the Lakers and the Kings and mandating that the lasers were on prime network. But you got to remember we owned it. So it wasn't like anybody was paying us to be on there. So it was really up to the ad agent advertising people inside the building to make sure that those time, that the time and the minutes were sold. 
and obviously they were not sold at the level level that the Lakers and Kings were at. So you're right. We were we were. I would take it a step further. It would have behooved us, Tim, to allow every person to come into the forum for free to sell the concessions. We would have been better off having 10,000 people in the building buying concessions and parking than it would be to charge them a ticket price. Right. And to your point earlier, if that still wasn't working, then boy, oh boy, why, why even, why throw bad money after, after the good? All right, here's the last question. And then we'll let this up. We'll tee this up for, for our next chat. Uh, Give me a sense of the last days when the plug was sort of finally pulled and Perhaps uh, your the seeds of what was still, I think, in your mind, still a viable idea at the end of all of this, and you know maybe what sort of allowed you to sort of think that, and then maybe we'll get to at some point a hint at what that ultimately led to. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, I do remember. You know, first of all, after Johnny left, let me be frank. It was extremely depressing. The whole atmosphere changed. The camaraderie amongst the the staff changed. There was a whole different level. You know, again, as I shared earlier, the writing was on the wall and the the spirit was gone, um, regardless of what happened on the field. Um, And Jerry knew it, I knew it, and, you know, I think Jimmy had other visions and other ideas for his future and what he wanted to get involved in in the horse racing world, et cetera, et cetera. And, again, the MISL... The other owners were not adhering or even even giving a glimmer of hope that they were listening to what Jerry shared with them in Cleveland at that time. So I think it, it was, I think I knew what was happening, and if I recall exactly. And one day my phone rings, and it's Jerry, and he says, I'm going to the dentist. I want you to ride with me. And it was, I think it was... Uh, the end of our, I think it must have been winter 1989, and I get in the back of his limo, and he looks at me and he said, we've given it a good run, I've given it my best shot, he said, do you want to go to work for Forum Boxing, because we had a boxing program, as I shared earlier, and I said, no, I really should take a break here. I, I really, you know, I, I, boxing's not my thing. I love this game of indoor soccer. I got to really rethink my life. And maybe it's time for me to, you know, <laughs> stop living in the Hollywood L.A. fantasy world and uh, get a real job. So uh, he looked at me and he said, I love the game still. He said, if you ever want to develop a league, that is modeled after the NBA bylaws and business structure and move it to the summer months and pay your players far substantially less than what they're being paid today, I will lead the charge as far as rounding up other NBA and NHL owners that own their own buildings to move forward and try to build the league. And I... I probably took it with a grain of salt, Tim, at that time, and not sure how serious I took him. And, you know, a few months went by. We closed up shop. After being at the forum now for 11 years, I said, I'm going to take a break. And then Johnny Buss and I uh, started music television for children uh, because we thought MTV was a little off color. And we were in a building uh, in mid-Wilshire, 
And uh, we started music television for children. And that building is actually where we started, where I started the foundation of the Continental Indoor Soccer League because I bumped into a, a gentleman from my past that helped me start the league. All right. I, you know, you set the table perfectly. So why don't we, uh, why don't we uh, sort of end in this cul-de-sac and then we can pick up at a, a time to be, to be determined when you uh, feel like you have not exhausted and uh, emotionally wrought from uh, all these memories. Uh, and we'll get into that because uh, that is uh, equally as fascinating uh, a story. Well, let me tell you, Tim, yeah, they're not all terrible memories, okay? So we had a hell of a lot of fun. I yeah, can let's tell you wrap that. up with that. How much, I mean, t do tell me about some fun, right? Because I, I got to think some of it. So let's leave on a happy note. What of, any things that sort of came come to your memories uh, in particular or just generally, it had to be some level of, of, of enjoyment in all this? Oh, my God. Oh, we, we had we had a ton of fun on the road. We we took trips to Alaska. You know, uh, we played against the national team uh, uh, in Australia. We we like I said, we had opportunities to travel and meet people. And the people, the people themselves, the soccer players, the sweetest, nicest athletes we've ever dealt with. They were so easy to work with and so personable. You know, and, and you got to remember, here we are with the triple crown line of Simmer Marce and Dion and Taylor and Kareem and Magic. You know, Magic and I became best friends. So those are great memories for me. You know, I'm living with Magic Johnson in 1979 before. So I have great memories of my times there and the, and the soccer piece itself. Let me tell you, to this day, okay, this is a straight-on story. We've had... Two laser reunions within the last three years. Players flew in from all over the country. Johnny and I showed up. We had a Zoom call with our laser staff from 1983 um, during the pandemic that we're in right now. And to a T, including Bill McDonald, the Lakers announcer who we helped get his start through the lasers. That was a great story, too, giving that guy his start to his career. Tim Harris, our goalie from, from UCLA that we drafted, started dating Jeannie back, back during the days of the Lasers, and now he's executive vice president or president of business affairs for the Los Angeles Lakers. These are great things, and it gives you a great feeling within your heart that you know you help people's careers start, like Bill McDonald, Tim Harris, and I mean, the list goes, Keith Tozer, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So when you touch people's lives like that and you know you had an effect on who they are and where they are today, those are extremely positive, positive times. So, you know, I don't look at it in total negativity at all. So, you know, and it, again, it brought me to where I am today working with the Bus family in 2020. So. All right. There you, go. you you can see why I've been pestering you for almost a, uh, over a year now to at least at least to start this conversation because I think it's a uh, these are all great not only memories but just a great sort of oral history of 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 some of this stuff and I hate to see people sort of forget all of it or frankly be unaware of it because there are lots of legacies plural as you're hinting at um, and I you know so I want to say number one thank you for taking time on a Memorial Day uh, and number two. Uh, let's figure out at some point, relatively soon, where we can pick up the story of uh, part two, shall we say, of your journey in in indoor soccer with the CISL. If you're, uh, if I haven't scared you away from doing so. <laughs> 
No, no, no. It's okay. The, C- the CSL is a, definitely another encyclopedia. There's no doubt about it. But it, that's a great one. I, I'm looking forward to that one. All right, what other podcast are you going to hear references to uh, people like Gabe Kaplan in the audience watching a L.A. Lasers game? And only here, only here on this little uh, this little show. Gabe, if you're listening, uh, yes, I uh, I do remember. And don't ask me how and why I remember that little uh, that little piece of uh, of information from my uh, my dusty uh, recollections of watching cable television back in the day. Uh, but yes, I do remember you in the stands for at least one L.A. Lasers game on the USA Cable Network, and uh, boy, oh boy, I, I guessed correctly, and uh, who'd have thunk it? Uh, but Ronnie, uh, we uh, we love you, and we cannot wait to have you back for uh, a part two of this, uh, shall we say, extended conversation, hopefully in the weeks to come. Uh, as you heard there, and many uh, not-so-subtle hints, uh, out of the ashes of this uh, Los Angeles Lasers MISL indoor soccer experience uh, came and sprung a brand new indoor soccer league with a, a more viable business model, as you heard sort of referenced in his uh, many conversations with uh, with the late Jerry Buss. The Continental Indoor Soccer League, the CISL. We have had a couple of conversations uh, around that in the past, Ken Tomash being one, uh, the Indiana Twisters uh, uh, specifically. But we're going to get into more of that, the founding and the, uh, the running and what lessons learned uh, of the CISL in, a, in an episode to come. So, by all means, keep your podcatchers fresh and uh, ready uh, for that episode to come in the uh, in the weeks ahead uh, with our our second uh, go round with Ronnie Weinstein, who we thank tremendously uh, for getting us going with the L.A. Laser story this week. Uh, and we, of course, want to thank you for uh, for listening this far uh, and, of course, uh, supporting the show in all the ways that you can. Uh, that's GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's our website. All of our old episodes are there for you. You can share them and stream them and download them and et cetera. Uh, there you will also find links to the various uh, books and movies and other wares that our various guests uh, have uh, been uh, uh, bringing to our attention. Uh, of course, convenient links there to Amazon and other places. And we get a couple of, uh, of shekels of love when you do so and you buy them those way, that way or those ways. Uh, we appreciate that uh, tremendously. If you want to follow us on social media, you'll follow uh, find all of our links, he says, uh, on our website there. But uh, also directly, you can follow us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find a Facebook uh, page devoted to us. And of course, we're on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you want to send us some email, by all means, do that. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, and of course, you can, uh, what else can you do? You can also sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Uh, that's e- most easily done. Actually, the only way you can do it is going on the website and uh, find the link. I think it's uh, uh, follow or contact or something like that. One of the one of the tabs will lead you to it. Uh, just uh, enter your email address in there and that uh, little form will be sent our way. And you'll get a, a weekly newsletter uh, each and every week, usually over the weekends, uh, that'll give you a sort of a head start on what our episode of the week is going to be. Uh, let us see. We also, of course, want to say thank you to Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne and his uh, showcase of audio excellence. Uh, he uh, does his best each week uh, to help us sound smooth and nice and delightfully sounding. And uh, we uh, always appreciate his efforts. And uh, thank you. A tip of the uh, L.A. Lasers. Uh, I don't know if it's a cap. How about uh, we shine a little of the uh, satin jacket uh, with the L.A. Lasers logo his way this week? 
not only do we appreciate uh, him, but we, of course, again, appreciate you for listening. And uh, let us leave you with how about a song? Sure. Why not? From how about Paula Abdul? Yeah, she was part of this story, the L.A. Lasers story. By 1989, uh, as the lasers were uh, uh, exiting the premises and the door hitting them uh, on their way out, Paula Abdul was finally ascending into pop superstardom with her very first album, which went seven times platinum, if you can believe it. And here's the first single off of that album. It's knocked out. And uh, we leave you with Paula and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Bye.